Hello and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Angus Story and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode we'll be talking to David Costello. David writes on history and politics on his website Never Felt Better and in particular has written an extensive series of articles on Irish military history entitled Ireland's Wars which spans from the earliest recorded conflicts on the island right up to the revolutionary period. We'll discuss with David his background and interest in history and in writing and what led him to create the site and write about military history before delving into that history itself and David's perspective on Irish revolutionary history in particular. You'll find David's website at neverfeltbetter.wordpress.com and you'll find a link to the Ireland's Wars series in the podcast notes. You can visit the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. As always, we welcome your feedback. Um, you can contact us via the website uh, by email at contact at leftarchive.ie or on Twitter at IE Left Archive. So thanks again to David for talking to us and thank you for listening. You studied history, obviously. Yes. And did you study military history per se? I, I did. So, so I, did, uh, I did a BA Arts in Maynooth. Right. Uh, 2006, 2009, uh, with where I did history and ancient classics. And then afterwards, I went straight into the masters that they do there in military history and strategic study. It's the center wow. for, uh, for, for military history, one year wow. masters. And at the time, it was the only one of its kind in Ireland. It exploded in popularity since uh, I did it when there was maybe only 30 in the class. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of people ask me why I did it. Hmm especially my parents. <laughs> they were very curious. And there was a lot of, re- but one of the reasons is just I've, I've always been very interested and very passionate about history. And yeah. always been very interested and passionate about military history. Yeah. And the, the God's honest truth is that it's just always something I've been, I've considered myself kind of good at. Yeah. So I just figured why not, why not do it? And I really, really enjoyed doing it. The masters, it was great. Uh, I yeah. learned a lot. It was, it was such a, a, an amazing environment. Uh, and the masters continues and that master's program continues now and it's it's really good to see that it's like expanding and more people doing it so basically i had finished college in 2011 which as you can imagine is not was not the absolute best time to be leaving college in ireland and i i left college and i was unemployed immediately like I'd moved back to Limerick for a brief period that didn't work out and i came back up to kildare dublin just to try and find better opportunities for work and just because more of my friends were up here but for the better part of three years I had a few odd jobs here and there short little short little positions but for the better part of three years I was unemployed and I'm sure you guys know unemployment is the worst thing for a young man um it's it poisons you um like you you feel worthless and you feel like 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 it's such a cliche but you literally have trouble getting out of bed in the morning mm-hmm. like i was setting my alarm like to get up and like the alarm goes off and you're staring up the ceiling going why do i have to get up today like what is the point like job there was no like jobs were hard to find and you know it does get at you and you know, me and my me and my friends and and, and people i knew from the masters we we would we would get together and we would have conversations about so many topics, you know, like about history or about films or about our interests or whatever. Mm. And I always found like I enjoy those conversations and I enjoyed reading similar stuff online. And eventually I was just like, I should just like, I, I was writing away stuff on social media, similar to what I started off the site with, mm. like, like reviews of films or TV, like quick ones, mm. and just getting into discussions. And eventually I was like, I should just, just, just start writing this myself, just like, like putting up on a blog or something. Blog is almost like a dirty word nowadays. It feels like it's like kind of... 2004. 
Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> I don't like using the word blog. I always say website. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I'll just start one and I'll just write. And if people want to read it, that's great. And if not, I'll no bother. And it's great. Like, apart from giving you that creative outlet of like, I'm, I'm getting to write something. I'm being creative. I'm, 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 I'm putting out something that one other person might find interesting to read. Mm. It was great because I got to say to myself, okay, you're going to write something today. You're going to get out of bed and you're going to write something. You're going to review that film you watched last night. You're going to talk about the latest political thing. Uh, like like very early on when I was in the first few posts of the blogs, it was uh, Enda Kenny's The Leadership Challenge for Enda Kenny from Richard Bruton was the big oh, yeah. news story. And I wrote, yeah. a few, I wrote a few things about that. And then you like you start, okay, so you're going to write five posts this week. You're going to write a post every week. You're going to get up early and you're going to write them. And hardly anyone is, is reading them, but that's not the point. The point is that you have a reason to get up in the morning. You have something to do. You're being productive. You're being somewhat creative i hope yeah and the benefit to your mental health to my mental health was enormous and it's something i didn't even maybe even realize at the time it's it's looking back on it i kind of realize wow i was in a funk i was in a really bad way like uh there was one month when i was late on rent which was a particularly low moment just like i literally had run out of money Mm. and um the website was a huge help just in terms of getting to write about the things you want to write about and just getting those thoughts down on paper and feeling like you're and like having your writing improve. I hope like the more you write that like you, like I can look back and like, like you cringe a little bit looking at the first year and thinking, wow, I've gotten better at this. Maybe not that much better, but I've gotten a bit better at this and seeing that kind of progression is great. So, so like, and when, when you've, when you've better mental health, I find like things can fall into place more. Yeah. You could be more proactive with like friends. You can be more proactive, maybe looking for work. Like, like there's, when you have that ray of sunshine, things don't look as bleak. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was the main reason I got into it. And it's, 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 it's really one of the main reasons I still do it. It's, it's my own personal mental health. Like I enjoy writing. It's a hobby. I always describe it as a hobby. Like, like one time a friend asked me, do you consider yourself a writer? And I said, no, <laughs> <laughs> I was amateur writer, maybe, uh, but yeah, it's primarily for me. I write for me. Um, right. And it's like, I, there's, there's always this sense of, of, of happiness when you finish something like a big post or you finish a series or something. And I wouldn't trade that feeling for anything. You know, How soon did you get into the military history? Because you'd done an MA in military history mm. in Maynooth. Yeah. And how long did it take you to pull that experience into the writing experience and say, well, okay, like, now I'm going to do this? Yeah, I'd always been interested in history, like going back to when I was a kid. And it didn't take long. And just like one of the things I've always like, it isn't that Irish military history has been understudied, not at all, but certain aspects of Irish military history have been understudied. Like, and I'm thinking basically anything before 1916, really Um, like, and and that gets bigger, the more you go back. Yeah. And I just remember like, I, I, like one of the things I enjoy about writing about history and researching history is finding stuff I didn't know about. And with Irish military history, like it seemed like at the time I was looking stuff up and I was finding a lot I either didn't know about or had only a tangential uh, knowledge about. Um, And I was like, there isn't really a lot of military histories of Ireland that are like about anything outside of the Irish revolutionary period. 
because I was look, I remember looking around for books and I was like, where is the general military history for the Irish Confederate Wars? Where is the general military history for the Nine Years Wars? Where is the general military history for 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 this, that, and the other? And you'd you'd, you'd there'd be odd books here and there, but usually like the like the heavy academic tomes that cost like 130 euro and uh, aren't really accessible because they're not for a general audience. In fairness, um, yeah. and I just remember thinking I could give this a go. Why not? Like I'll I'll just start. I'll just I'll start at the start and I'll just see how long I, I, I go and, and, and see and see if I if I'm still interested. And that was like eight years ago now. And it's just I find it's just very enjoyable to write about. And I, I'm and I still get that that happiness from finding something I didn't know much about and mm-hmm. learning more about it. Like I think in the week leading up to this, you kind of touched on uh, that 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 incident in um, Kilkenny in mm-hmm. April 1922. Mm-hmm. Which were like pro-treaty and anti-treaty forces, like were shooting at each other for two days, like two months before the civil war started. Yeah. And I was like, I'd never heard of this. Like this, and like I remember, I was looking back through books I, I'd read during my masters, and I was like, this is just a footnote in these. Why is this a footnote? This is fascinating. Um, and I was like, more people should know about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's just that's just a very recent example. Like the, the one thing I like when I talk about this with people that I always like to bring up is the Irish Confederate Wars. Mm. Because like um, everyone knows about Cromwell. You, you ask people about that conflict and they're like, Cromwell, uh, Siege of Drogheda, you know, to hell or to Connacht. And I'm, and I'm like, yeah, that's right. But there was a war 10 years before that. <laughs> you know, um, and there's fascinating stuff like how, for example, for a brief period in that war, there was five different armies in Ireland, all with different competing ideologies, all opposed to each other like having this big elongated campaign and you ask people about it and they, they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I find, and, and that, that's, that's one of the reasons why I, I, I like writing about Ireland's wars and Irish military history, because there's so much there. Mm. And even in a really well-traveled territory, like the Irish revolutionary period, you still find stuff like, like the odd, like minor ambushes or, or barracks attacks that, are, are interesting in their own way that like a lot of people don't really know about. So how do you, how do you, uh, how do you research them? Like if they're off the beaten track, both literally and well, in the Well, like for the, the Irish stage. revolutionary period, the big, huge resource is the Bureau of Military History. Mm. Like you'll, like I, I love just to pick random, like, like random submissions to that and just and yeah. seeing what people have to say. Like you find the most amazing stuff in there. Yeah. Um, but like, it's delving into local histories, like local history publications, uh, like Google Books is very, very handy for that, I mm. find. And like, you'll find it, like, because there's always people, like, especially in local areas who, who like, are the authority on, like, the smaller ambushes and, and have put their thoughts to paper inevitably. Yeah. And you'll find that information. Um, it's just that when people are writing, like, the larger books about the general period, they, they don't have time to, like, touch on every little minor engagement, especially in a war, like, say, the War of Independence, where it's nothing but minor engagements. Yeah. You can't spend a chapter talking about this ambush where one person was was injured or this ambush where a house was set on fire. Yeah. Um, but I thought that I kind of have the scope to kind of go into more detail on those kind of things, which is which is good, I guess. Mm. Um. In terms of like what I research, uh, I have a few like set texts for any particular conflict that I'll go to. Like, for example, right now, a big one for me is Michael Hopkinson's books on the War of Independence and the Irish Civil War. Green Against Green is his Irish yeah, Civil yeah. War book. Yeah. Uh, the Atlas of the Irish Revolution, which I got as a gift a couple of years ago. Invaluable and amazing resource. I would heavily recommend to anyone interested in Irish history. And a few other kind of t- key texts. Uh, 
and then after that's Bureau of Military History. It's and it's as much free stuff as I can find. You know, Google Books, various various resources in the internet. I know it's like a dirty word to say, but like you look up Wikipedia and you look at the bibliography of yeah. conflicts, and you will find amazing stuff there that you can look up. Yeah. So I mean, and like you could you like if you search long enough, you'll find stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like there's a few key texts, but after that, I, I I just I just look and look and look before you if you find it. Like the there's a great book I, I can't remember the name of it now that I found all the Kilkenny stuff on. It's 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 literally just a local publication, the Civil War in Kilkenny, mm. which had all that information on that on that battle. So that's just yeah. how you find that kind of stuff. You start at the very beginning. You start mm. at the myths and yes. and the legends about Ireland and yeah yeah it, yeah. You know it's it's fascinating because you make the point yourself that the there's likely a kernel of truth, a little nugget of truth. Sure. There's, all, there's always truth in every story, like in every myth. Like I'm not like the Tuatha de Dan and probably yeah. didn't have magic powers and, and, and didn't, <laughs> you know, fight a giant demon who could shoot fire from his head. But the, like everything's based on something, you know? Yeah. Um, and like one of the things when I was reading through like the, the annals of the four masters and, and, yeah. and, and all those kind of stuff to like, look at that specific thing like the common thread through all of them was there's always a new, new group of people arriving on the Island. Yeah. Whether they're the Fomorians or the Malaysians or the Tuatha Day or whoever, there's always another group of invaders who come in yeah. take over and then get overthrown in turn. And I was just thinking you could easily imagine that having a basis in just like prehistoric Ireland, just being a place where like one group would arrive, mm. another group would arrive and they, there would be conflict. Another group would arrive. And that's just kind of how that stuff arises. Mm. Yeah, I, and it does seem to me that in a sense, like Ireland seems to be contested territory for, mm. um, I mean, actually, this kind of skips on a bit ahead of that area or beyond sure, that area yeah. there. But in the sense of Ireland becomes a strange adjunct, it has its own, its own structures, political and otherwise. And yet England and Scotland, to a certain extent, are playing out their conflicts on mm. Irish territory and yeah. Irish Ireland is playing out its own conflicts as well simultaneously. It seems to be this strange mix, particularly as we get into recorded history and we move closer mm. and closer to the present. I mean, um, Ireland was the frontier for a long time. Like it was, the Wild West is not a bad comparison where it was on the edge of Europe and it was on the edge of everything. And it was the place where like young nobles would go to try and make their fortunes, but you know, it, it was a gamble coming to Ireland because you could end up with a lot of land or you could end up like killed in a ditch somewhere. Yeah. It was that kind of place. Um, yeah. Like one of the things I was like, you mentioned that before. And one of the things I was remembering is like how an event like the Crusades was an enormous event in the history of Europe. Like you look at any account from any country in Europe around that time and they'll mention Crusades and young men taking the cross and this, that and the other. Mm. But when it comes to Ireland, there's almost nothing. Like there's, there's very, like there's pressure. There's a few fleeting references to, to like the odd Irish chieftain or King going off in crusade, but there's no records of like mass enrollment in crusading armies. There's, there's no reference to very, very, very little. It's almost like that seminal event in medieval history, just completely passed Ireland by like, that's how isolated Ireland was. Yeah. And I think some people might not fully realize that, but, but yeah, it was the frontier. Like it was, very far from everything <laughs> yeah in that sense we're sort of the spillover the stuff then that spills over from europe or from mm. england in particular scotland then spills into ireland and then they have proxy wars yeah. and and then territory i guess as well ultimately sure, yeah i mean nearly every major war that's been fought in ireland 
has been to some degree a proxy war between great powers yeah. like the nine years war is eventually a kind of a proxy war between england and spain the irish confederate wars are a proxy war of the larger english civil wars like 1798 is a proxy war for britain and france you know um even the even the easter rising is is kind of a proxy war between britain and germany in a slight sense mm. uh, i wouldn't want to go overboard but yeah, Ireland has often been treated as just this sideshow to other mm. conflicts. And obviously it's very important to us, the sideshow. Uh, yeah. But but you're correct. I mean, one of the other things I often found in Irish history is that there's always this element of this ally from abroad is going to come and save us. The Spanish are going to come and save the Irish in the Nine Years' War. The the, the French are going to show up and save us in the Confederate Wars and the War of the Two Kings. The, the French are going to show up again in 1798. And, and even as far, even up to the revolution period, like like I was reading up the treaty debates yeah. uh, a, a while ago, and there's this big section where, where anti-treaty speakers are just like, but like 10,000 American volunteers are going to be here any day now. Like they're going to be here in the next few months or weeks, you know, so there's no need for this treaty, you know. I can't remember exactly who said that. I'll have to look it up. But like there's, there is always that consistent thing where we are on the periphery of Europe and we're on the periphery of larger conflicts. But then we kind of like Irish nationalists and, and Irish Republicans f- over rely on that kind of support uh, yeah. up, up to the War of Independence when we kind of stopped doing that and it, it, kind of, it worked out a bit better. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely a pattern that you notice in Irish history. Going back through your site, I was, I was fascinated, like, in a sense that the very first stirrings of what we might recognize as at least vaguely recognizable Republican sentiment and to an extent, uh, social awareness seems to kind of come around, uh, 1798, I say mm. that suggests is where yeah. now there's so many contradictions replete in 1798 and you, sure. you detail them, you know, phalanxes of people traipsed across the Irish countryside led by priests yeah. and, and this strange, you know, the United Irishman being a most strange kind of model for it is. It, it's uh, it's it's definitely a very unique organization in Irish history. Just like a an Irish Republican entity that had was led almost not not entirely, but led predominantly by Protestants. Yeah, seems like such a remarkable thing nowadays. Yeah, I'm always struck by like local history and oral history in the sense sometimes, and and you make the point yourself about the Crusades. Uh, how these vast events can occur and they can seem so far away from the people at the time and their perception of it. So I'm just curious, like how self-aware do you think people were of these, you know, the the Republican character of these events uh, and the influences, obviously the French revolution and I guess the U S revolution and so on and so forth. I'm just curious. Yeah. Like the 1798 rebellion, like one of the problems that they had was they didn't have enough support. Mm. Um, the common people, especially outside of like the 1798 rebellion takes place over a very narrow part of, of Irish territory. Like, like there's almost nothing in Munster and Leinster. And like one of the problem, one of the things people recognize after that, especially when the, the Irish Republican Brotherhood is founded and stuff like that is that we, we have work to do to get Irish people to actually see the benefits of Republicanism mm. as, as something to strive for, because like the common Irish person in 1798, you know, France might as well be on the other side of the world. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're more concerned with having enough food to eat and paying the landlord and, and all that kind of stuff than major revolutionary change. And 
that's definitely reflected in, in events like 1798, where there is a, a lack of support nationwide, which cripples the movement. It's def, it's majorly uh, evident in things like the 1848 Young Irelander Rebellion, which yeah. which I think is an event that barely deserves the title of rebellion, Yeah, um, where there's almost no support whatsoever. It's very evident things like 1867, when again, just the support just isn't there. Mm. And even, you could even argue the Easter Rising, at least while it was happening. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer, but like there was a lot of work had to be done to, to convince people that militant Irish republicanism was, was a cause worth supporting and following. Mm. And it took a long time for that to happen. You, really, it, it really didn't happen properly until 1919. Um, and considering that, like, the earliest vestiges of Irish republicanism was, like, 120 years before that, you know, that, that kind of gives you an example of the kind of work that had to be done. And and even then, like, 1919, it's influenced so much by, like, things like the conscription crisis and stuff like that. It isn't so much that people all stood up and said, you know, what republicanism is is the way to go. It, it, there was out, external factors you have to acknowledge there as well. But that's just the way history goes. Sometimes you get opportunities, you take them and... and and Sinn Féin and the IRA took them at that time. Before we even say to get to 1916, I mean, you've got a very interesting, you, you mentioned 1848 there, you've got a fascinating analysis of this. It feels from that description, which you yeah. give, that it was such a low-level sort of event on a certain... Ext- extremely low-level. Yeah. yeah, like the Young Irelanders, idealistic young men who overestimated their support is is the simple fact of the matter. And, and being brutally frank, trying to launch a popular uprising in the middle of a famine, yeah. uh, just... Yeah. just in a hiding to nowhere and and i think in ireland we have a we have a tendency to glorify defeat which is just kind of natural when when yeah. when a lot of your military history revolves around defeats to foreign powers mm. but it's it's hard to see much glory in what happened in 1848 you know it was like the the joke is that it was the battle of the cabbage patch you know um so it's and i know i know it's it's one of those uh the six times that we've that's like the irish have uh Risen up in the proclamation. Risen up, like, yeah, they've, yeah. they've proclaimed it in arms six times over the past yeah. hundred years. I'm just like, 1848, you're really stretching the bounds yeah. there to say that that was a major uprising. And similar to stuff like eight, like Robert Emmett, for example, mm. who's such a such an heroic figure to, to Irish Republicans. Mm. His rebellion was, it was a riot, you know, and that that he he stopped when it got too far. Right. You know, when so like, it, it's just another example of just another incident where idealistic young men with with good intentions in terms of wanting to strike a blow for Ireland's freedom, just mm. overestimate their support and overestimate their own abilities. So from a military history perspective, looking at 1798 on mm. up to, but not necessarily including the rising, because we can discuss that in a second, but did any of them have a whisper militarily? No, uh, like, like there's a lot of like, you, you could talk about the what ifs forever and ever mm. like 1798. If there was a national rising, as in people rose up, uh, in Munster, in 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 Connacht, to more extent in Ulster or or in Leinster, and if there was greater French support, like if the French arrived earlier, for example, than they did, then then maybe you could possibly foresee some kind of revolutionary state coming into being, maybe. But there's a like there's like twenty what ifs there, you know, like well if this happened and if this happened and if this happened, and, and eventually you're just like well, you know, it's extremely unlikely. Like an 1848. Not not a prayer, really. I mean, mm. uh, 1867 was like, again, it's like, a, well, what if the, the, the organization wasn't riddled with informers? You know, mm. like maybe something could have happened. But again, 
even even if there had been short-term success where like the country is seized by men in arms and and and, and a republic is proclaimed the british military which is one of the strongest in the world at the time isn't just going to sit there and go well okay uh i guess i guess we're finished in ireland that, that's just not kind of the way it goes yeah and that kind of goes all the way up to 1916 which I mean, I think you kind of made the point during the week where I, I used the term that it was a total failure militarily. Mm. And I do stand by that. I, I think mm. the Easter Rising is a total failure militarily. Uh, like a small amateur militia held out for a week against the British Empire, which is not a, a small feat at all. Mm. But they failed to win any significant victories and they were defeated pretty quickly uh, within a week. So it's, it's, it's a failure militarily, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because by the time we get to the Irish revolutionary period, I think revolutionary nationalists have figured out that military victory is almost impossible, but also isn't the only way to win. Mm. Uh, like we, we, we defeat Britain by courting international opinion and by making them look bad. Yeah. And that's exactly what they did because the, the Easter Rising is a military failure, but it, you couldn't possibly call it a general failure. The like the the people who who instigated the Easter Rising um, got exactly what they wanted, really, which is they had the eyes of the world on Ireland, and they were able to claim that they had shown up the British Empire, and they got to paint their whole struggle as this glorious romantic sacrifice, which is exactly what the movement needed. Mm. And three years later, you know, with the War of Independence, like men like Michael Collins knew. We're not going to win Ireland's freedom by taking a barracks or by ambushing a platoon of auxiliaries, mm. but we're going to we're going to win by making the British look bad and provoking them into bad responses that will make them look bad even more, and by just convincing them that there is no point in doing this anymore. Mm. So, like, there's 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 different levels of victory, you know, yeah. where yeah. those kind of victories were impossible for like 1798 or 1848 because like there was no mass media to take advantage of and you know, like America in 1798, not that they could care less about Ireland, but they weren't about to like start calling the ambassador in to complain about a massacre in the middle of nowhere in, in Ireland. Uh, but come 1920, 1921, suddenly demographic, demographics have changed. Mass media has changed. Like one of the things like, like the, the sack of Balbriggan, you know, where like, every journalist in Dublin is there and taking pictures. And suddenly like a few days later, the guy in Tokyo reading the newspaper can read about it. Um, The whole dynamic had changed there and the, the way to win a war had changed. Hmm. And while you could like, I I don't want to say that the IRA won the war of independence because I don't, I don't really believe that myself, but they certainly didn't lose it. You know? Um, So would you consider like 1916 in some respects and, 1921 as very modern wars i mean in some ways we think of it as being antiquated because uh, groups of people take over I mean, certain areas mili- you know like that's the yeah, yeah. objective but i mean ant- antiquated in terms of like they're using old bolt action rifles and, yeah. and you know that kind of stuff but the kind of tactics that they had been that they used in the war of independence like what they would call asymmetric warfare mm. uh nowadays guerrilla warfare if you want to be like more old school uh like that stuff was thousands of years old. It wasn't some new thing. It wasn't a new thing to Ireland either. I mean, like uh, guerrilla warfare was a very common practice in Ireland going back centuries. Um, mm. It's just that the environment had changed enough that that became a method whereby you could actually achieve political goals uh, where it wasn't quite as possible earlier. 
Um, but like you can look at events in the War of Independence and the Easter Rising and find lots of great examples that you could apply to military teaching today. Like, and it can be very simple stuff. Like the Battle of Mount Street Bridge mm. is the perfect example of like a very small force utilizing terrain, knowledge of the local area, and the ignorance of the enemy to great effect. Uh, like you could, like you could teach like the Mount Street Bridge like battle to any military college in the world, as far as I'm concerned, and you could impart something very valuable, even if it's just like don't underestimate the enemy. Yeah. Countries like nowadays, like like America, like when I was doing the masters, there was a big emphasis on counterinsurgency in mm. when it came to military history and strategic study because they were bogged down in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they were throwing money at any institution that would come up with studies mm. for counterinsurgency. So, like frequently, things would come up. Uh, where they would reference like the Irish War of Independence as an example of guerrilla fighters essentially winning their political objectives, albeit I know that's a bit, a bit of a debate. Yeah. Um, but like to, to, out, to outside eyes winning yeah. their political uh, objectives through guerrilla warfare and an example of the British not executing a counterinsurgency strategy properly, hmm. uh, of ignoring hearts and minds entirely in favour of, of uh, collective punishment and, and things of that nature. Um, when and and not fighting a guerrilla war to the extent that they needed to fight it, like one of the things is is like people like Henry Wilson and and, and Neville McCready are constantly complaining at the time that like you know we're either fighting a war or we're not. So if you want us to defeat the IRA, we need to flood the country with military, not RIC or placentans or, or auxiliaries. Like yeah. it's, it's it's astonishing to me to see to read like someone like Henry Wilson who was so fervently anti. Sinn Féin anti-Catholic hmm. like criticized the auxiliaries because he was a military man and he was like yeah. they're, they're, they're undisciplined and they're making us look bad it's like, like he wanted like send in divisions send in British military regulars and we'll beat the IRA hmm. and he was probably right um, but like there was there was a hesitancy to do that in London hmm. so they were kind of fighting a half war and you know when that happens the opportunities for guerrilla fighters to succeed just grow and grow hmm. Because like when 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 the when the big side of the asymmetric war won't commit for whatever reason, whether mm. it was fear of bad press or just mm. they didn't want to waste the lives, then the smaller side, the guerrilla bands, the IRA, the flying columns, they they get more power to achieve their objectives. So, do you think there was a British military solution? at that point mm. that they could have uh, and would that have been a long lasting one do you think or would it have been a short well one? like you, you have to kind of couch that by saying like the british military could have defeated the ira like they could have instituted martial law throughout the whole country they could have flooded the country with troops with planes with tanks mm. they could have done what they did in south africa basically mm. uh, at the end of the oh, boer yeah, war with yeah. the with the pillboxes and, and concentration camps or whatever they could have done it but it would have been a short term victory really because just doing that, like like doing that would have just like inspired the next generation and the next and the next. And I, I absolutely think that there is a there is a sentiment in the British leadership at the time of the Irish Revolutionary Period, which is just like, how long are we going to keep doing this? Yeah. You know, like um we promised them home rule and now that's not good enough. That's like like if we if we can get out of there with like something we won't call home rule which is which is really not that far from home rule mm. won't that be enough and getting that kind of political compromise in wasn't going to be accomplished by a full-scale military solution mm. okay so yeah I, I do believe the british army could have defeated Sinn Féin and the ira if they'd yeah. 
if they wanted to, but the cost would have been enormous to them, just both in terms of lives and in prestige, I suppose, mm. for lack of a better term. And then it's not a long-term victory. Yeah. Because like 10, 20 years down the line, you're doing it again. You know, yeah. there's, there's, the, there's a new organization, there's a new rebellion, there's a new uprising. Like there's, there's always going to be people who are going to be inspired by the last generation. Right. So like, I always remember like the British, like, like men, people like Churchill obviously were a bit more gung-ho about finding a military solution. But I think people like Lloyd George, especially, they wanted out of Ireland. They wanted that, that exit to be beneficial for Britain and to look good, mm. uh, which they kind of achieved. In in, mm. in a way, I think. Um, but the point, the important point is, they wanted out. Um, they didn't want to have to keep fighting these wars in Ireland over and over again. Like the Irish, que- like it has that name, the Irish question. Yeah. You know, like you, like you, I'm sure, like Lloyd George at the time was thinking, like, well, this is something Gladstone was dealing with, like you know, like a century ago. Like, why are we still here? So yeah, I mean, like it, it's 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 it, it depends on your perspective of what military victory is, because mm. like victory without like a lasting political solution is pointless hmm. and in the war of independence did you get do you have the sense that if they'd held out a little bit longer the ira would have been ground down to a point uh... i mean it's kind of it's hard to answer that like you'll see people in like and that came up in the treaty debates actually hmm. like i say in reading like you have pro-treaty yeah. voices insisting we were nearly done we were we were this close to to being completely destroyed we were out of guns we were out of bullets and then you've anti-treaty people saying that's not true we had like i don't know what you're talking about in my division we have loads of guns and loads of troops and loads of bullets and and that kind of thing so it's hard to really say i mean like the ira could have prolonged that struggle a lot if they chose to like not everything has to be a big ambush or a barracks attack or anything like that like you can go back to assassination you can go back to a lot of property damage and burnings, which is something that a lot of people were pushing to happen more in Britain mm. up to the time of the truce. Like there was a big call for like, why aren't we doing more of this in England? Like you have stuff like the Liverpool dock fires, of course. And, but there was a lot of like, we should do more of that, you know, mm. um, like, cause it's easy to start a fire. Yeah. Like IRA volunteers, they could always bury their guns. You know, if, if the British military presence got too heavy, they can always hide the guns and retire for a few years. You know that that's that's the problem, like, and it's it's a recurring thing in guerrilla warfare all the way up to Iraq and Afghanistan. It's just like you know, the locals will always be here. Mm. The British military won't always be here. We just kind of have to wait them out. So if that means yeah. that the war gets paused or goes to a much lower intensity for a while, then so be it. And there's always ways to like to fight. Like there's there's assassinations, there's bombings, there's there's other methods they could have continued the fight. And I mean, we've seen that. Like the provisional IRA had a campaign that lasted decades. Mm. Uh, without without military victory for themselves mm. or the British, like like I said, I think like a, a huge like marsh full martial law swamping the country with soldiers could have achieved mm. temporary victory for the British and could have defeated the IRA in like italics. I would say defeated. Yeah. Uh, but like like I said, defeating the IRA was one thing, but there's it's no good defeating an army unless you have the political solution afterwards that makes sure they don't come back. The treatment you have of um, the Fenians and the IRB. Who's, who play a, the IRB is a fascinating organization. Absolutely. Do you think that yeah. they brought something new from 1867 onwards in, in the sense of, like obviously they waxed and waned as an organization, but do you think that they brought a new sort of rigor and robustness to the struggle? Well, to an extent, I mean, like they learned a lot of lessons from 1867. 
which was a disaster just because mm. of informers. And, and they learned a lot about secrecy and circles within circles and and, and plausible deniability and things of that nature. And, and the, the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing isn't always a bad thing yeah. when it comes to these kind of, of, of organizations. And I think they learned that the big showy rebellion isn't the way to go, at least not right now. And they, yeah. they worked very, like it's astonishing the amount of infiltration the RB, the RB was able to pull off. Like you look into organizations from the Gaelic Revival, Gaelic League, GA, the Irish Volunteers when they came, and like the way RB was able to put their people in positions of power was astonishing, really, and, and to do yeah. it under the noses of other people. Yeah. So I think they, they learned that it's, it's a long game. <laughs> like 18, after 18, yeah. they learned like it's, 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 you know, we're here for the long haul. You have to build up slowly. You have to, you have to get allies, even if they don't realize they're your allies. Yeah. But at the same time, like the organization had its problem. Like there's that story I always remember. I can't remember if it's Richard Mulcahy or, or, or somebody else. I might, or maybe it was Liam Mellows hmm. who talks about being sworn into the IRB and he was sworn in like on the back door of a pub by That's an inebriated right, yeah. Fenian. Yeah, I think it was Mulcahy, I remember, but I, it, it might, it might have, I, I can't quite remember who yeah. it was. And there was this distinct feeling of just like, well, this this organization's a joke. You know, yeah. it's 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 old men who who don't know what they're talking about. But again, that goes back to the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing, and like there was very effective people involved in the IRB during that period, like Bulmer Hobson, for example. Yeah, um, who were doing a lot of great work. Like, well, depending on your perspective, obviously. Yeah. And that kind of came through then in the Easter Rising when when the IRB essentially were took over that that portion of the Irish Volunteers and, and progressed their agenda that way. There's another side of that as well, which is James Stevens, and and you make reference to this that he began to see the necessity for social revolution simultaneous mm. with national revolution, sure. for want of a better phrase, or a political revolution, perhaps is a is a more apt phrase. And I think you're right, realizing a vast amount of the Irish population was not currently waiting in line to support republican principles, yeah. but might be educated to that point if they could be effectively told what republican government could offer the working class. Do, do you think that's a, a a point where that thinking begins? even partly to infuse or permeate yes absolutely like like events like 1913 like the lockout and mm. things like that definitely kind of awaken that working class to to the idea that we can have more than we we have and and there's there's methods of going about getting it but like there's that continuing problem with the with the Irish nationalist movement just to give it the vaguest title mm. which is that it's the it's a broad tent yeah and you have people in this who are absolutely committed to social revolution, who yeah. who don't just want Ireland free and it's basically the same thing, uh, only we elect our officials or, or we have our own people in charge. But they want like to- they want land redistribution, they want agrarian reform, they want the church to have less of an impact on society, and they're in the same tent as the people who are just like basically home rulers, mm. um, all the way up to nineteen, all the way up to the civil war. So yeah, I mean, it, it was very hard to get across to people the benefits of of left wing socialist revolution in that period. I think because, mm. you know, especially like after nineteen nineteen and what was happening in Russia, mm. it was always just the Red Scare and and you know, like one of the like the Limerick Soviet, for example, which from the from the from the face of it you would think must have been a very hardcore left wing thing, mm. was like endorsed by priests in the local area and like the people were saying we're, we're giving prayers at set times. There was no talk of 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 revolutionary Soviets as we would understand it from mm. Russia. Mm. 
the, the, the outcome of the Irish revolutionary period where you, you get the Irish free state, which isn't hugely different from the status quo beforehand in a lot of ways, especially in terms of like that kind of social side of it mm. kind of, kind of, and people see, like the majority of people seem to be satisfied with this, at least in terms of election results, maybe if you want to go by that way, uh, kind of shows you that like social revolution and, and approaching the Irish revolution from a left-wing perspective wasn't as predominant as, as, as certain people wanted it to be. Yeah. And do you have any thoughts about the Irish Citizens Army? And like, obviously it had a, a fairly central role in 1916. Yeah, huge, from yeah. 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 But then... 1916 is the end point and then one yeah. you know i guess one thinks like it, it continued to exist in fact it continued to exist for yeah, some yeah. time after but it was sort of shadow existence more and more mm-hmm. but was that because of Connolly's execution and him being taken out of the picture or do you think there were other it, like it, looking and even in the military context i mean mm-hmm. how significant a would you see it in the military context and yeah. secondly do you have any thoughts as to why like it the, the loss out? of Connolly was huge yeah. Connolly was such a magnetic powerful figure for that movement like it's a it's a big what if if Connolly had survived 1916 I think I think a lot of Irish history could have been very different um when you lose that kind of leader and then in combination of like I said this broad tent kind of developing where a lot of the other kind of significant figures in the Irish's army like Constance Markievicz become more associated with Sinn Féin and the IRA Mm. than they do with the Irish citizen army and suddenly You don't have those dynamic figures yeah. and it's a bit of a trite metaphor, but the IRA steals your thunder then, you know, it's the IRA are the ones carrying, are the ones destroying the DMP in Dublin. Whereas the Irish citizen army is just kind of, it's become a kind of a comrades association more so mm. uh, of like veterans of 1916. And then like when it comes to the treaty, they take a neutral position, which is always not great for your long-term viability, I think. And yeah. they have a lot of people who leave the Irish Citizen Army after that neutrality because they don't agree with the treaty and they don't agree with not doing anything to stop it. Right. Um, and did they go over to the Republican side then? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm not, and I'm not saying these are huge numbers. The Irish yeah. Citizen Army was not a big organisation at the time, but there was definitely a significant portion of it in 1922 who disagreed with the treaty and and the status quo in a lot of ways that it represented, especially in terms of the working class and, and social revolution, and wanted to fight against it and and thought that the anti-treaty side was the best way to do it, even though the anti-treaty side absolutely did not necessarily endorse social revolution or or, or left wing politics or anything like that. Yeah, like Eamon de Valera was definitely not like you know no. uh, on that uh, that kind of thinking at all, yeah. even though he wasn't in charge of the anti-treaty side or anything, but he was like a significant figure. So, I mean, the Irish Citizen Army has its moment in 1916 and, and to a lesser extent in 1913. Mm. And it's it's a very significant figure. Like one of the things I always remember is that proportionally more of the Irish Citizen Army turn up for 1916 than the Irish Volunteers, mm. uh, despite the countermanding order. And mm. and they they do a few extraordinary things in St. Stephen's Green and at City Hall and in, 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 and in the GPO. Mm. Uh, but like... They're like like the Irish Volunteers. They're hamstrung by lack of numbers, so there's only so yeah. much they can do. But yeah, and it's just they were always smaller than other organisations. When you lose the big magnetic dynamic leader like James Connolly, it's hard to it's hard to keep going um, when you've no one like that to rally around or to fight your corner for you. So in a way, it wasn't too surprising that they kind of became essentially a footnote in mm-hmm. the Irish War of Independence and Civil War. Yeah, and in the sense of the contemporary Irish state. There's never really been any sort of, well, 
there's never been any great deal made about the Irish Citizens Army or incorporating it as such into the state. And I'm wondering, yeah. is that true of the military as well? I would say so. Like, like I know it's not the exact answer to your question, but, but one thing I always remember about the Easter Rising outside of Dublin is that in Cork, you know, the Easter Rising never really starts in Cork City. Hmm. And one of the things you read about is that the people in charge are hearing rumours about what's happening in Dublin. And one of the rumours is what's happening in Dublin is just an Irish Citizen Army thing. It's nothing to do with us. So let them do whatever they want. They're not, in this, they're not the same as we are, so we should just stay out of it. Which yeah. kind of gives you an idea of kind of like the larger military organization, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but they weren't like hand in hand with the Irish Citizen Army. And like Connolly was the same looking the other way. Like he had very little time for, for certain men. Like he had very little time for, for like a lot of Porrick Pierce's ideology. Yeah. You know, um, I would go so far as to say like looking at some of the writings, he seems to dislike Pierce a lot. Nice. Um, like I know some people might disagree with me on that. Just a few, a few comments here and there, like James Connolly, like especially on the kind of blood sacrifice angle, he's, he's, he's quite critical. But like, they're, like the Irish Citizen Army, they're a small group and I think they're kind of representative of how small that kind of left-wing working class social revolution focused aspect of the military struggle was. Right. And like, then I suppose that's reflected, as you say, later, like, in the last hundred years, there hasn't been as much emphasis on the Irish. There's, there's emphasis on Connolly, mm. maybe because he founded the Labour Party and, and they became a, a mainstay of Irish politics. Mm. Uh, but the Irish is an army, not so much. Like even people like Mark Yavitz are more associated with Sinn Féin because mm. uh, she was elected as, a, as an official, as, as a Sinn Féin rep. Yeah. And like there's less personalities there. Like, like not a lot of people know about Jack White, who was the first kind of military advisor for the Irish Citizen Army and... Mm. And stuff like that. There's, and when you when you don't have those kind of names to latch around in terms of popular remembrance, it, it's hard to kind of get that kind of thing going. I find. Yeah, and of course, like uh, Connie was dragged in. Well, he wasn't dragged. He obviously was more than happy to be on the military council. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, like like Connolly, like I I do admire. I, I might not admire all of Connolly's politics, but I, mm-hmm. I admire kind of his conviction mm-hmm. and his kind of real politic thinking, where he was just like, well. I don't agree with everything Pierce and 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 Plunkett and and Clark say, but we're not going to overthrow the state ourselves, <laughs> you know. Um, so we have to start somewhere, and we have to yeah. do something. Um, so he he was a pragmatic individual in a lot of ways, and I think that's to his credit, yeah. actually. Um, and dare I say that there's more people on the hard left in our in Irish politics who could stand to be a bit more pragmatic, like Connolly. <laughs> yeah. So. Don't don't quote me though. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think looking at that? I mean, you see, there's another angle to this as well on another strand, which is, of course, not just the British Army and militarily. We've had a quick discussion about like what they could or could not have done, but in terms of say the the UVF and uh, unionism and loyalism and the paramilitary side of that. I mean, even just to throw it out there, would you see them as totally reactive or would you see them as proactive in terms of the history? Well, the kind of both, I suppose, because the Ulster Volunteers are, are reactive in that they were formed after Home Rule became inevitable, or at least it seemed inevitable at the time. Proactive in that they 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 started that kind of movement in Ireland of kind of armed militia and were a direct inspiration to the Irish Volunteers, of course. Hmm. Um, but like... The Irish volunteers, in terms of like practical operations or military things like that, they don't do much. Like, like of course, a lot of them end up joining the British Army for for World War One, um, and later on, like the Ulster Volunteers, they, they they get kind of subsumed into stuff like the Specials and and 
and the Ulster Constabulary and things like that. So they're an absolutely vital part of Irish history. Um, just, just the act of them being created was a huge instigating point for things. But I, I do sometimes find that that study of the Ulster volunteers and the Irish volunteers pre-1916 can be a little sensationalist. Like one of the things that's become like a catchphrase for that period is um, there was going to be civil war in Ireland before World mm. War I broke out, which is not something I agree with. The, the thinking seems to go that just like home rule was going to be implemented and the Ulster volunteers and the Irish volunteers are going to end up shooting at each other. Mm. Whereas I, I'm the, of the firm belief that if World War I had never happened, home rule would have been implemented, but it wouldn't have been implemented in Ulster. And I think the British government was edging that way pretty clearly before World War I started. So, mm. and, and going by subsequent events, like, again, we're going into kind of what if and counterfactuals, but mm. I would say that I, it was likely that home rule would not have happened in Ulster and the Irish parliamentary party would have accepted that. Begrudgingly, they would have accepted it. But like, would the, if, if that had been the solution, would the Irish volunteers have been sent marching into Ulster? I don't think they would because the whole point of the Irish volunteers pre-1916 was get home rule or, or pre-World War I, I should say, sorry, is get home rule and, and marching into Ulster, probably to fight a losing battle, if we're being honest, uh, would endanger that. Mm. And similarly, uh, you know, the Ulster volunteers were founded to prevent home rule if they had if they had gotten a non-home rule settlement for Ulster, the six counties or whatever it would have been, extremely unlikely they would have risked that by marching south and attacking the Irish volunteers. Um, and like you can see that later on because like home rule pretty much does get implemented mm. uh, in 1922 with some with some bells and whistles. Mm. Uh, and while there is like violence on the border and, and raids back and forth, uh, there is no large scale civil war between north and south mm. um so so to that extent i i find study of that period which kind of just assumes that there's going to be a civil war in ireland and, and, and only the the assassination of franz ferdinand prevented it is a little sensationalist like like you just get down to practical matters like the irish volunteers had bad rifles and not a lot of ammunition right. uh and they weren't going to get ammunition from anywhere else you know um the ulster volunteers are fascinating mm. they have a limited impact on the period though like after 1913 and especially after 1914 they're just not that important uh, in comparison to like to like the irish volunteers and and the split that happens and, and things of that nature and presumably they wouldn't have gone in arms against the british army either. Oh, absolutely well uh, yeah i mean like you can imagine elements of the irish volunteers maybe doing that because like they some of them oh, do yeah. in 1916 yeah um but the Ulster volunteers definitely would not have like, like, and going by events like the Curra mutiny and things of that nature, it's far more likely that the British army would have been fighting on the side of the Ulster volunteers. Yeah. If that was to happen. Um, yeah. I do like just, I just sometimes like the Ulster volunteer, like it's very, very important, especially in Ulster. Mm. Um, but after 1914, like their, their relevance to the Irish revolutionary period, like I think dips significantly until you get to like the war of independence and creations like the, like the, the specials and that things of nature, which do have a lot of the same crossover with the Ulster volunteers, but aren't really the same thing. And the war of independence in the North. I mean, have you got a, a sense of an overview of that? Um, very Belfast focused, uh, like you said, in terms of bloodshed, especially like it, it is astonishing when you like right now, at, at, at the time we're recording this for for the series, I'm I'm still in the truce period between the War of yeah. Independence and the Civil War, and you look up like like DCU have this this timeline 
uh, website where they, they go into like a day by day what was happening. And mm. it's literally every day, it's like another person killed in Belfast mm. in that time. Like the, the death toll is enormous in Belfast. It's, it's, it's like from, 19, from July 1920, when things really kick off in Belfast from the sectarian kind of mm. perspective, it's the bloodiest part of Ireland, easily. But it was primarily kind of a sectarian conflict. Like, like the IRA doesn't take much part in it during the War of Independence. The IRA is kind of standing by and, and defending nationalist areas from attack, but they aren't, they aren't that proactive in Belfast. And they were criticized for that, actually, by, by certain figures. To a large extent, it's just sectarian mob violence in, in Ulster, like being carried out not so much by groups, although, of course, like the RIC is involved and, and like the, the Hibernians are involved. But a lot of times it's just mobs. Like to to give them a phrase, I know some people don't like the the term mob, but it's it's hard not to to use it. Um, and it's it's almost a separate war to what's happening in the rest of Ireland. And there's 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 obviously other incidents in Northern Ireland, like in Derry and Armagh and and Monaghan. Actually, uh, if you want to include Monaghan as as as, mm. as the north, I know some people <laughs> would just automatically just kind of not not include it because it turns out it becomes part of the twenty six counties. But like. One of the one of the really striking things about the North during the War of Independence is how figures they not that they don't care, but it's just kind of like we'll deal with it later. We'll sort we'll sort out the North after we win our war, and yeah. you know, and then after their war, like the North is a separate entity, and and Collins it's, it's it's only then that Collins is trying to organize offensives into the North, and he's doing so in kind of ignorance of the conditions there. Like he thinks. We're going to send the IRA over the border and they're going to have the same kind of support that they had in Ireland during the War of Independence, which just isn't the case. Mm. Um, and that kind of severely curtails like what they can what the IRA can do in Northern Ireland post-truce. So yeah, like it, and it is understudied the North and the War of Independence, because like most of the in, like the really well-known and interesting events, the War of Independence happened in Dublin, or they happen in Cork, or they happen in the South. Mm. So like, and like there's in terms of military history, like there's only so much of like rioting crowds like like yeah. kicking each other to death that you can like kind of write about in Belfast um I mean I am like I, I don't want to say that I'm looking forward to it but I am anticipating like later on in the series when I do get to the troubles mm. and that kind of thing I, I am looking forward to kind of studying that period and more and studying that area in more depth and getting yeah. more into kind of like a proper military history it's hard it's hard to do a military like study of of like the violence in belfast in, in during the war of independence when it was so pell-mell and lacking structure shall we say so in a sense like the sense i get from you is like it, it was the war of independence was a war of independence that implicitly maybe even unconsciously to an extent excluded the north to an extent yeah how conscious do you think people were at that point in time like say pre-Collins thinking, ah, now is the time to supply units in the north, you know, at the very point when it's probably the least useful. Yeah, well, it's hard to say. I mean, there was definitely people involved in Sinn Féin who, in the middle of the war of independence, were 100% like, yeah, we'll give up the north, no problem. Um, to, to get the settlement we want, uh, it's inevitable that we'll have to give it up. Just like there was inevitably people who were like, we'll fight to the death for the 32 counties, you know, um, like, like because because of the demographics in in Belfast and other parts where there's such a high unionist slash Protestant slash loyalist population in comparison yeah. to other parts of Ireland, to a it, in it to an extent it's kind of an alien situation. Like like the IRA in Northern Ireland, they're facing the British military, they're facing the RIC and the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries, but they're also facing one thing they didn't face in the rest of Ireland, which is a hostile local population. Yeah, which is which makes guerrilla warfare impossible. 
Um, yeah. you, you can't fight a guerrilla war. And it's something the IRA would learn during the civil war then, the rest of Ireland. You can't fight a sustained guerrilla war if the local people aren't on your side and, or, or if half of them aren't on your side yeah. because you don't have places to hide arms, you don't have safe houses. There's every second person is willing to, to tell the police where you are or who you are or what you're planning to do. So just by by virtue of the fact that like all, like the six counties has a huge loyalist population, mm. it's it's difficult to fight the same kind of war in Ulster that the IRA fought in Munster and in Dublin. When we talk about to what extent there's a sort of a, a social consciousness attached to to um, a military action, and a lot of the time that support wasn't there, or certainly mm. the support for social change may not be. You know, ideology tends to be an awful lot messier than that. People hold kind of contradictory beliefs. I mean, you mentioned the Limerick Soviet, for example. Yeah. You could have people, you know, in some aspects ostensibly kind of workers' control, but also saying prayers before they had the meetings of the yeah. council. And, you know, I was wondering how you kind of felt about that, that do you think we look for too clean an uh, uh, ideological line oh, in that? Then, oh, right? absolutely. I mean, I think it's 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 a problem in, in the study of history generally, not just in Ireland, that like complicated things are not, popular you know it's it's like there's like there's a reason world war ii is the most popular like military history subject ever it's because there's good guys and bad guys and and it's 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 easy to kind of present it as that kind of struggle and people are interested in reading about that kind of struggle whereas you get into aspects of like things like the irish war of independence where again it's sometimes it's framed as good guys and bad guys um which i don't think is very helpful but there's there's so much complication to it and like like the limerick soviet is the perfect example of like a worker driven maybe uprising is is dramatic but but sort of an uprising in a way mm-hmm. uh which has like left-wing aspects absolutely like like there's it's it's worker driven and 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 like there's a there's a big kind of uh almost social democracy element to it and that like there was an effort to like keep shops open and keep people like fed and watered and 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 all that kind of thing but like it is sort of endorsed by local clergy so it's definitely not a communist uh, affair you know um it's it is hard to look back from 100 years ago and, and kind of not fall prey to kind of easy narratives mm-hmm. of like of like left-wing, right-wing and, and Catholic or, or atheist or whatever. Um, but I mean, I think it's it's possible. And like it, it, it ties back into that kind of broad tent kind of term I used before where like like out of the conscription crisis comes this massive union of right and left-wing elements in Ireland under this kind of nationalist banner, which I think is, is kind of maybe a macro kind of example of it. Mm. Um, and, and which became problematic uh, when, when there was a truce and suddenly it's like, well, now we actually have to decide what kind of country we want. Mm. Um, and it is part of the problem um, with, with that kind of period is that, you know, things like the Limerick Soviet, like, which only lasts very briefly and ends very peacefully, Mm. um nothing comes to kind of the crisis point where people have to kind of decide well are we are we violent anarchists are we peaceful left-wing protesters are we this that and the other whereas when it comes to the larger picture like it comes to the treaty and it's like well actually we do have to decide now are we are we left-wing are we right-wing are we clericalists are we home rulers are we republicans what are Mm. we i often remember like the the 1918 election um like the the manifesto that that's fought under is very vague and like deliberately vague mm-hmm. and that's problematic then later because then like it's it's all things to all men 
is Sinn Féin. Like everyone is just like, well, what's Sinn Féin? Well, it's a 32 county Republican movement. And what's Sinn Féin? Well, it's it's a constitutionalist home rule, uh, 26 county uh, movement. And what's Sinn Féin? Oh, it's well, it's a militant Catholic uh, political organization. And what's Sinn Féin? Oh, well, it's 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 uh, this organization that helps like agrarian reform and and all this kind of stuff. Do you think we're still too prone, maybe in a historical view, to to project coherence onto? organizations in a post-doc way then that absolutely yeah like i said before like people love the simple narrative mm. um it's kind of like how michael collins like is, is 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 a hero to the irish zeitgeist should we say like 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 you ask people today who's the most famous who's the who's the most famous irishman to ever live a lot of them will say collins mm-hmm. and this is the this is and he's portrayed as a hero despite the fact that you know for a lot of Republicans at the time of his death, he was the devil, you know? Um, uh, but like he, he dies young. He doesn't have the same negatives attached to him from future political problems like De Valera has. And so we're able to craft this narrative of Michael Collins was a military hero who died too young before he had a chance to make Ireland great. Whereas people like De Valera are the guys who made like had political power afterwards and then turned Ireland into this very like Catholic conservative state and then are criticized quite rightly for that uh later on whereas people like collins are i mean it's it's i know it's such a cliche to say but like you you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain and um collins is kind of an example of that uh and is like just an example of like like you say that kind of very simple kind of perception of here's the here's the hero here's the villain like with devil air like like say like neil jordan's movie kind of leans into that very strongly Mm -hmm. um that is that is problematic for the Irish Revolutionary Period, which is such a complicated, like decade, hugely complicated, um, and we're kind of seeing that like a bit with a decade of centenaries, like stuff like the RIC Memorial, which mm. which annoyed a lot of people, and which which I think was a huge political own goal, but which didn't bother me too much really, because like I'm not going to turn out for it, so like um, like you can do whatever you want, um, yeah, but like as an example of just like you know, like the, the, the things that were brought up by some people, like, well, lots of people in the RSC were Irish and, and they weren't like pro-British ideologues, like to, to a big extent, like, why, why do we have to like dismiss them? Um, that doesn't mean I think the state should be commemorating them either, just to be clear. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but I think people are uncomfortable with the idea that the black and tans, which like the RIC kind of did the, the normal RIC tends to get lumped in with the black and tans fairly or unfairly. People don't like the idea of the black and tans being treated as anything other than the, the bad guys of the Irish revolutionary period. Mm. And I think that can be a bit unhealthy in terms of drawing the lessons from the period and analyzing the period. Like one of the things I all like, if I, if I'm ever reading about like a massacre or like say the, an atrocity from that period. Mm. I always try and remember this happened a hundred years ago. Mm. Uh, getting annoyed about it now helps no one. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's good to be passionate about history. It's, it's good to have political opinions and to tie them into stuff that happened in the past, but like getting annoyed about, about the black and tans. It's all right to be like, to think the black and tans were horrible people that did horrible things, but it's not helpful to just like become obsessed with that and to to start painting other groups like that were associated with the black and tans with the same brush like the RIC. And again, though, just to emphasize, I don't think the state should have been commemorating the RIC as well either, just to yeah, be clear. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You make a point about Kill Michael and the yeah. 
controversy over the full surrender or not. Mm. Michael's a great example. Yeah, I mean, you say like too many historians, in your view, discount the simple truth. Oh, sure, like like war. Like you read Peter Hart's work on Kill Michael, Mm. and it's so like to be brutally frank, it's so slanted um against the ira in terms of like trying to paint this picture of the ira as as murderers and war criminals and stuff like this and comparatively not so much attention played to the black and tans which isn't right at all um and like michael's a great example of like we expect an awful lot of people looking we look at it a hundred years removed and we are expecting an awful lot of Tom Barry and his men to have clear, concise accounts in their head of exactly what happened yeah. uh, and to be able to give those accounts 10, 20, 30 years after the event. And if there's any inconsistency, oh, someone's lying. There was no surrender because Tom Barry didn't mention it explicitly in this little report he made like so many days or weeks after the event, which I think is very just not not good, not good history. Basically it's it's and like, I, like especially for Kilmichael, like I, when I was writing about it, I tried to put myself in the mind state of like a young man in the middle of rural Cork who's in a gunfight and his life is literally in peril. And the, like the, the kind of feelings I would have at that moment, like would I trust myself to, to, like, to act honorably, as maybe someone like Peter Hart would put it? Would I trust myself to like recognize a surrender or or to not react murderously to what I see as a false surrender? Of course I wouldn't. Um, like it, we're very like we can be very judgmental about things that happened a long time ago that are completely out of our experience. Um, like I couldn't judge anybody that took part in Kill Michael too harshly because you know when bullets are flying and and like like the fighting of Michael gets especially brutal it's hand to hand at some point it's 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 a it's an horrific event in a lot of ways um and it's and it's it's a very confusing event like the the book i always recommend on kill michael is by an american guy called w h uh, coit uh, i might be mispronouncing his name coit coit k u t t mm. he wrote a book called ambushes and armor which is like a, a study of counterinsurgency in ireland at the time and he looked at uh, the Kilmichael ambush and he, he did a lot of study and he was, he just came to the conclusion that it's perfectly possible there was a real surrender, but it wasn't recognized surrender. Cause like Kilmichael is like, it's actually two firefights happening in a very, in a very small, small area of land. It's perfectly possible that people in one part of the firefight tried to surrender people in the other part of the firefight on the same side kept firing this was mistaken as a, as a treachery and, and, and a false surrender. And the inevitable result was that everyone on one side was killed. So it's not a case of the evil murderous IRA killed all these people for no, like then they shot their prisoners and blah, 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 any more than it's a case of the evil black and tans tried to trick the IRA with a, with a false surrender. It's more likely that, you know, in a very high stress, high intensity situation, a mistake was made somebody misperceived something and you know the, the end result was a was was a lot of bloodshed yeah. that doesn't mean that like the people who who undertook the bloodshed are killers or evil or deserve a huge amount of judgment uh like peter like peter hart gave uh, i'm kind of i'm mentioning peter hart a lot i know a lot of his stuff on kill michael has been discredited quite rightly mm-hmm. um and that's like a, like a, kill michael is a great example of again that kind of like we fall into those narratives too much of good and bad and like, well, the IRA had to be good or the black and tans had to be evil, which again, I just, I don't think is very helpful sometimes. 
Yeah. It's, well, I mean, it's something of a cliche, but it's a good example as well of the extent to which it, uh, you know, we're really talking about the present sometimes when we're yes, discussing these things and playing yeah. out, you know, current um, conflicts and. You know, past is prologue is 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 the reality of what history is. Like like history is always political. Like I, like when I when I'm writing about history, I'm, I'm trying very hard not to be biased towards one side or the other. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's not even helpful. Like when you're talking about things like say the execution of the Easter rising leaders, mm. it's hard not to be very critical of what the British did, you know, mm. uh, both in terms of like how the trials were a mockery of justice and how it was just, again, a spectacular own goal in terms of what they wanted to achieve in Ireland. So it's, it's sometimes it's good to criticize and, and to kind of maybe take a slightly moral stance. Um, but for the most part, you, you try and be as, as, as removed as possible you can't always be as removed as like I, I'm sure, like sometimes I read back some stuff I've written like years or years away and I'm just like well I probably shouldn't have said that that was that's <laughs> that's like like I'm putting on the green jersey a bit here you know in this particular section or something like that or or maybe I'm not maybe I'm maybe I'm erring too much to the other side hmm. but like it's it's important to like try and be as neutral and and and, and unbiased as possible I mean like cause people get furious about this stuff I mean, we are like, like even on Cedar Lounge, I'm sure you, like you, you, if you put up a post about anything to do with the Irish revolutionary period, like I check it the next day and it's like 50 comments, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah. um, like the only time I have ever been threatened online is because of a history post. Hey. <laughs> I, uh, I wrote a post, it was actually about Irish neutrality in World War II. Right. Uh, I wrote a, I wrote a post about Irish neutrality. I was I was uh, I was writing about a chapter in Max Hastings' history of the Second World War. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, all all hell let loose. It's called. Hmm. Um, there's a brief there's a brief part where he talks about Irish neutrality in a very negative uh, fashion. He, he's he's kind of critical of Irish neutrality. I wrote a blog post where I just kind of went through some of his arguments and I, I made some counter arguments and this hmm. that and the other, and people were furious. <laughs> like I got so much. Like it's the most negative comments I've ever gotten. And the worst was someone who threatened to like uh, to basically to beat me up if they ever met me. Um, so I, I actually like I like stopped comments on that article after a while because it's just wow. And it's it's like and that's just something like something as unimportant to the larger Second World War as Irish neutrality gets yeah. people's hackles up that much. Yeah, and then like stuff like you can understand why stuff like Kill Michael or or anything else in the Irish Revolutionary Period would would get. Irish people's hackles up as well. Um, yeah. You're you're now edging into the um, civil war. You're a mm-hmm. couple of posts, I imagine, away from it now. Yeah. Um, that's that's handy chronologically. Yeah. Given that we're now in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's kind of yeah. It's kind of yeah. yeah. Um, what's your intention? I mean, your intention clearly is to keep going right the way through the twentieth century. Uh, I mean, like, there, there's so much to cover in the 20th century um, after the Irish Revolutionary period. There's there's mountains of stuff, really. Yeah. I mean, like, there's obvious stuff like the emergency. Yeah. There's the role of Irish named units in other armies during the Second World War, like like in oh, Britain yeah. or America. Uh, and then, like, that's before you even think about stuff like the Irish involvement in UN missions or the yeah. Troubles, which is going to be an enormous focus because it yeah. kind of has to be. Uh, like I remember years ago when I was thinking about how I was going to cover like the troubles when I got to it, I was like, oh, I'll do like a post for every five years. 
And now I'm just, I know I'm looking at it. I'm like, that's not going to cut it. <laughs> there's, there's a lot more to, to cover in the troubles than, than, than I could possibly do in only a handful of posts. Mm. And then like, like you get up to, like, there's just, there is a lot worth talking about. Like I could spend, I know I could spend a few posts talking just about IRA slash Nazi Germany, like connections during the second mm. world war and, 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 and the efforts of like certain parts of the Abwehr to like get involved in yeah. Ireland and things like that. Like one of the things I I'm really looking forward to delving deeper into when I get the chance to is like the German plans to invade Ireland, the mm. British plans to invade Ireland, the mm. Irish plans to resist a German invasion with the help of Britain, <laughs> you know, yeah. just like yeah. all this kind of theoretical stuff is, is, is something I really enjoy looking into. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's always fun to engage in kind of counterfactual history and wonder kind of what might've been. Yeah, and like even in like just just in World War Two, just in terms of stuff that actually happened in Ireland, you've got stuff like the Belfast Blitz, mm. and and the uh, the Dublin bombing, bombing um, which is yeah. which is a really yeah, which is a really interesting uh, story in terms of like how it was perceived as happening and how it kind of really happened. We realize mm. now, mm. and just stuff like that. So like, there is a lot more to come. Like, I'm not, I'm not seeing it finishing for another few years at least oh, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. uh because and like just even bringing it back like the irish civil war like when i did the masters the irish civil war was my kind of specialist kind of subject i did my thesis on the civil mm. war in limerick mm. so i have a lot to talk about there yeah <laughs> like yeah. i've planned out just the conventional phase of the civil war which is basically just the first two months and there's at least 15 posts worth of material there or if not more so, and that's like, you know, that's, that's four months of posts, <laughs> essentially. And that's before you get into the guerrilla struggle, and, and, which is comparatively understudied. Uh, so, like, I could, I, could, I could be at the Irish Civil War for, like, the better part of a year yet. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot more to come. And, and it is actually something that bothers me a little that um, it's kind of top-heavy, the series. Like, once you get to the, ni- the 20th century, I have a lot more posts than I have like previously, like I've, I think I've got a, like 150 or so posts since the 1900s, whereas there's only like 420 posts total. So like I've covered like 2000 years of Irish history in, in so many posts. And now I'm kind of getting close to that number again, just yeah. on the last 20th century, which is just kind of well, a natural kind of recourse with having more sources and more to talk about mm-hmm. and then things of that nature. But one of the things I definitely planning on doing is when I get to like modern day or when I get to, the full stop which is going to be just like today here's Ireland, here's ireland's military situation today and maybe tomorrow uh i want to go back i want to start fleshing out things like i have two posts only where i talk about the viking invasions or raids in ireland i definitely want to expand that out i want to do more on that uh, i want to talk about more of the period before that in more detail i want to talk about like what prehistoric warfare in ireland might actually have looked like like yeah. uh, and stuff like that Uh, Like just the other day, I was just, I was reading through something. I think it was an old History Ireland article. And it it was talking about how uh, during the Italian Wars of Unification, a unit of Irish soldiers went to fight on behalf of the Pope. And I was like, I never heard about this. Like, damn it, I I missed it. (laughs) Like, that's a perfect, that should have been a post. Uh, um, Especially because it it came in a period where there's not a whole lot to talk about in terms of Ireland's military history. Uh, so I definitely like want to go back and talk about stuff like that. Like I, I want to flesh out everything. Basically. Would you would you think of putting it a into written formats? And I mean, I think I mentioned to you before we started recording, maybe a podcast or something mm. like that. Well, so, I mean, like one of the things time? I always talk about is is I don't consider myself 
like an uh, like an authority i don't consider myself an expert i'm like at the absolute most i would call myself an amateur historian right. which is kind of a dirty word mm-hmm. in academic circles uh, i i know like that's why like i don't do a bibliographies or footnotes no. the reason i do this is because uh first of all it's for my own enjoyment i enjoy writing history i don't so much enjoy trawling through footnotes and writing bibliographies yeah. it's a bit tedious it's i like and i'm not writing an academic exercise yeah like I, I like, and if people want to like ask me about a specific post, do you have like a list of stuff you were reading for this? Absolutely, ask away, and I and I will tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's finished, and I go back. I I would like to maybe write a brief bibliography for every post, like even mm-hmm. just a brief one to say these are the main texts that I looked at. Uh, I've thought about putting stuff down into kind of a written format, like specifically like stuff like the Irish Confederate Wars is a very understudied period in Irish mm-hmm. history. And even from commercial Irish history, like there's very little out there on bookshelves, like in chapters or whatever about the, mm. the Irish Confederate Wars that like, I'd love to be able to write something that like anybody could pick up, read, and that would that they would consider like a simple, easy to access narrative for what happened there. Um, in terms of podcasts, we kind of mentioned at the start, I hate the sound of my own voice and I, uh, we might see how this goes and maybe I'll think about it again. Um <laughs> there's a lot of great Irish history podcasts out there that, that people can recommend and that, you know, I'd, I'd end up invariably comparing myself to negatively, but I mean, there's always scope for that stuff in the future. Absolutely. Like it is kind of, it is, it is kind of inspiring to see those kind of, and like, I know Alan with his, uh, his, 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 uh, his, his, his podcast. podcast. Uh, yeah. He's also really like, I love that kind of minutiae of Irish political yeah. history. Yeah. So that kind of stuff is, is an influence and it is inspiring. So maybe I will give it a go at some point, just probably not yeah. in the short term. Yeah. Well, you have to keep writing anyway. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm never going. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop writing when I like lose my hands. I think. Well, listen. I mean, I think. Um, thanks a million for coming in. That yeah, of is, course. Uh, fantastic. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks um, a for coming. Yeah.